What's going on everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Dad's Game Podcast. This is John here as always. And guys, have you seen the latest news? We have a new expansion coming up, as they have said, in August. But somehow, it's gonna be at the end of the month, which coincides with the brand new ranked season. I'm very excited for the brand new region that comes along with the new expansion known as Core of the Mountains. In the new expansion, there will be a brand new region known as Targon. I wouldn't say it's brand new. If you guys follow League of Legends, you guys will have known about Targon. It is the region that contains Diana and Leona. And speaking of Dionia, Diana and Leona, sorry, I almost butchered that. Sometimes I have a slip of the tongue and mess up the words I want to say. Oh man, that... Targon trailer was on point man, I gotta give it to Riot Games and their design team or the animation team, it was spot on. The cinematographic, the animation, the audio, everything was amazing. What could I say more if you guys watched League of Legends, especially during their champion trailers, event trailers, even during their premier events, like those regional events, world championship mid-season invitationals, all-star events. I gotta say that the production value that they really put into the games really take esports to the next level. I remember coming from a Dota 2 background, where Dota 2 as a game itself, from Dota 1 to Dota 2, I would say that animation at least lapped 10 feet, even 20 feet. It was totally unlike Dota 1. The animation was really good, graphics was on point. I still remember a time in which my friend told me to play League of Legends. That was easily during season 1 to season 3. That was around 2011-2013. I saw the graphics and I wasn't very pleased. It looked like a third rate game to me. And all of a sudden during 2014, during the season 4 world championships, the one that Samsung won, I was shocked to see the progress that the game has had during the years that I was easily calling it a cheap ripoff of Dota 2. I was amazed at the graphics and how far it has come. It was at that point I decided to give League of Legends a try and I really liked the simplistic gameplay and overall experience of my very first game playing League of Legends. In fact, the very first champion that I played, or I would say master, was Lucian. Unfortunately, I'm not much of a Lucian player when it comes to Legends of Runeterra, as the only few decks that Lucian seems to fit seems to be revolving around Kalista Lucian, destroying your own creatures to trigger Lucian's level up. And during the early days of Bannerman mid-range, when no one thought about splashing Garen and Fiora together. Instead, they just ran Lucian along with Garen, which was the very first version, if you guys remember, back in the Korean Invitationals. That was where Demacia truly shined, or truly shone, and the whole world realized that Demacia was pretty solid as a mid-range deck. And so from, the, from that point on, I started watching League of Legends. I kept up to it. I watched most of their pro games. During that time, I was still in high school and I was serving my... And after that, I was serving my mandatory military service, also known as national service, where Singaporean males are conscripted to serve in the Singapore Armed Forces, aka the Army, for two years before we can start college. It was during my time in national service where I met a couple of people who were around the same age as me, some younger, some older. They were playing League of Legends, so very rarely they were playing Dota 2. So we sat down and we talked about it. And that was how I was still in touch with the League of Legends overall ecosystem, the champions they had, the regions, and overall lore. I kept up to it. And that was how, when you guys watched first episode, was how I realized and found out about Legends of Runeterra. It was because of last year's Worlds where they mentioned that they were going to launch a couple of games to make the overall League of Legends or Runeterra universe something like the Warcraft universe. And I would say so far, Riot Games has done a very good job in making that a reality from the, cinem- from the cinematographic, like I mentioned earlier, all the way to the overall strategy that Legends of Runeterra is having right now. Even though Legends of Runeterra is not the game in which a lot, of people are, a lot of people are playing. In fact, a lot of people are leaning towards more of Valorant or they are still sticking to League of Legends, which is currently the most played game in the world if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Valorant is great. I see tons of my friends some of my colleagues, when I overhear them during lunch, they're talking about, hey, you gotta play that new FPS game. It's almost as good or even better than Overwatch. And from what I can see from the public sentiment, it seems pretty damn good. 
all I gotta do is Google search Valorant, and I can see that the rating is pretty high. Even for Legends of Terra, I can Google search it. And I'm pleased to see that the rating is pretty solid for a game that's only been around for 5 months now, during its official launch, maybe a year during the beta or the alpha season. So when it comes to Call of the Mountains and the overall patch, they're going to be releasing a couple of cards, I think at least 107 new champions. I would like to make a, make a prediction that all the champions will be probably Targon. The cards will most likely be, I would say 75% will be Targon, the rest will be split among the 6 other regions. Overall, I'm quite excited to see. As of right now, we all know the new keyword which is Spell Shield. And Targon seems to be a more supportive region. So do a, take a look, take, do keep a look out for that. I might see a lot of mid-range strategies revolving around Targon. As for it being a control or combo deck, it doesn't seem to be leaning towards that. That's my assumption from what I understand. But Spell Shield seems busted right now. There's a card that is like a 3 mana deny, making your creatures immune to the next spell target. By the way, Spell Shield is a mechanic that allows your unit to be immune to the next spell cast on it, and it's burst by the way. I can see it having all sorts of red flags over it during the first 2 weeks of launch. It's probably gonna get nerfed to 4 mana eventually, maybe turn into fast. Cause I can't see a reason. Uh, cause there, there's really a big difference between Spell Shield and Deny. Deny being 4 mana, but Deny is, being a, but Deny is able to block Ruination and Harrowing. Whereas Spell Shield is mostly in response to Vengeance. And maybe give a Vengeance argument, Vengeance is 7 mana. And all you need is a 3 mana spell to negate the effects of Vengeance. And we factor in that most of the removal are from Shadow Owls. Effective removal, let me correct myself. By the way, there are kids screaming downstairs and they are, they are playing in the playground. Let's just ignore it, I'll just edit it out. Anyways, we look at other forms of cheap removal. Most of them cost more than 4 mana. Look at Way of Ironia has been recently nerfed to 5, Dragon's Witch is 7. I don't remember anyone playing Dragon's Witch, but I'm just throwing it in there to give an example. We look at removal, most of their mana are pretty high. Effective removal. Even Get Excited has a downside of discarding a card. So when we look at Spell Shield and that 3 mana burst that allows you to protect your minions or your champion, it seems pretty busted on first glance. We'll have to see how the meta turns out. But we all know right now it's a mid-range meta where it evolves around Sejuani, Ash, Ezreal Twisted Fate, and also Sea Monsters. And Sea Monsters don't really rely on destroying creatures on your side. Their priority is to reach deep and win the game from there. So when it comes to Spell Shield and negating a, a being able to protect your minions, it looks busted right now, but when we look overall in the overall meta when Targon comes out, it might not be as strong as what people think. That's my two cents regarding it. I'll make a more in-depth analysis of all the cards and all the champions, mechanics, potential strategies in my next episode. Because for today, you guys saw the episode title, Balance of RNG in Legends of Terra. Buckle up boys, it's gonna be a good one. When it comes to balance of RNG in Legends of Terra, I would say that Riot has done an amazing job in ensuring that the RNG levels in Legends of Terra isn't that high. And for that, I am very amazed and pleased at the same time. For the first time in my life, I'm playing a card game in which losing to a random outcome almost doesn't ever occur at all. I come from a background of physical card games and it was from physical card games that RNG gave it a pretty bad rap. Sometimes having casual conversations with friends, even having people just casually chiming in. The first thing that comes to mind when it comes to card games always has to be about RNG and how card games is always luck favoured. Even when it comes to games like poker or even when it comes to gambling, people often associate card games with luck and that is something that is an integral identity of card games even today. We all know about the brutal and the, the brutal feeling of your opponent just getting that out or just being able to get so lucky that he's able to defeat you. You thought you had him by the ropes or you had him already. In your mind you're thinking you're 99% sure you're gonna win when all of a sudden all he had was that 1% and he drew the best card in that perfect scenario to beat you. Is that RNG? That's up for debate. When it comes to RNG in card games, especially in physical card games, I can still vividly remember the terrible times in which the outcome of the game usually decided by a dice roll or a coin flip. If you guys played Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic, there were certain cards whose effects relied heavily on being lucky. One bad coin flip 
one bad dice roll could lose you the game and render your 50-50 play. It will net you your loss. However, if you were to get lucky, or if your opponent were to get lucky, they will win the game on the spot. Physical card games often had this degree of luck, which made it exciting to watch, especially when you view it in real life, especially when you see of championship finals where you are a spectator and you are crowding the guy, both guys who are playing against each other. When it comes to the outcome which relied on RNG, the coin flip or the six-sided six die roll, everyone always seemed to get super hyped and excited. That was my memory of watching people play card games in the past. And somehow, RNG evolved into doing random effects or generating random cards in your hand. Sometimes, the degree of the cards can be as ridiculous as doing something to a random card in your opponent's hand or even milling cards from the top of your opponent's deck. I'm sure most of you guys have experienced something like that. It is often seen in Hearthstone where with advancement of technology, we see RNG being taken to another level which has never been reached before. In fact, RNG has been the pivotal part of Hearthstone's identity for the longest time ever. I still remember one of the World Championship Grand Finals. There was one player by the name of Pavel. He was incredibly skilled. However, his, his victory and eventual reign as world champion was often black marked because of his insane or lady luck was always smiling on him or smiling at him. It always seemed that RNG favoured him. And some people even called him Pavel Stone or Pavel Book to name after a certain card that could generate random spells. In fact, in Hearthstone, most of the cards often generated random cards. You couldn't control the outcome. Sometimes, every card just feels like an inside of ages. And so far, there's only a couple of decks and cards in Legends of Runeterra that support this overall RNG-esque playstyle. Even Hymervi, the strongest in Legends of Runeterra, who meant to stay on top of the game for at least 2 months, had a very high degree or even a marginal degree of randomness due to Flash of Brilliance being able to generate that game-winning spell for you out of nowhere. Not to mention, the other cards in the deck just made Heimervai so incredibly powerful, being able to disrupt your opponent's plays, do direct Nexus damage, summon elusive minions, tutor spells from your deck through deep meditation, it just feels like an unlimited ammo deck with the ability to generate different kinds of turrets based on the scenario or the game state that you're in. Is RNG going to be a thing forever? That's hard to say. There are some random things about RNG in digital card games nowadays. Like I mentioned, due to the advancement of technologies, we have things like random targeting, which can be seen in Bilge Water, Make It Rain, some degree of randomness also exists in pilfered goods or more commonly known as nap. In the past, nap was often used a lot. Look at how I'm referencing nap like it was something from the good old days. In fact, two weeks in Legends of Nodera can feel like a year in our, in our times. Look at how fast the meta has progressed over the past four months. We have been through so many patches, been through so many meta changes, it is incredibly hard to keep up if you're not part of the game or if you're not consistently playing the game for at least you have to consistently play it all the time. Even missing one or two weeks could just set you back one month and you have to totally recap the entire meta all over again. When we look at Nap, there's a certain degree of randomness when it comes to it. Being able to steal cards from your opponent's deck from the bottom of the deck, they changed it instead of from the top. But sometimes the ordering doesn't even matter because you put it at the bottom of the deck. There's a chance that the game might not drag that long. Hence, the randomness in nap is sometimes puzzling. Some people might think that drawing from the bottom of the deck, the argument is, I'm not going to draw it either way, so if my opponent gets it, you know what? I'm, not, I'm never going to get access to it anyways. There's some argument that I see certain players have. However, the overall thing is that the luck side or the luck part when it comes to drawing cards from your opponent's deck, especially from the bottom, who knows that card might be the exact card that you need at the right time or at the right moment. So that's incredibly hard to say. And like I mentioned, 
some degree of randomness when it comes to digital card games today is things like generating a random card like inside of Aegis, Flash of Brilliance, and in Hearthstone, there are so many ways of generating random cards that lots of players get pissed. Sometimes you also you are not being you are not able to control the outcome of a random effect. So right now, let's talk about the general parts of RNG in card games. When it comes to RNG, there are certain things that we think about or factors in to the overall structure of randomness in card games. The first thing that comes to mind is card draw, drawing the right cards at the right time. The second, of course, is outcome randomness, where you are unsure what's going to happen when you play a certain card. Or like I've said previously, maybe a coin toss or rolling a six-sided die will determine your fate and the outcome of the entire game. And lastly, this is something in which I feel is pertaining to RNG and how one can either reduce the chance of them being affected by it or improve their chance of benefiting from relying on luck which is none other than deck builds, different strategies such as running combo or running a mid-range deck. So let me briefly talk about card draw and how it affects the luck factor in RNG. Because most of the time when we are playing card games, if you're not running something that is reliant on a combo-oriented deck or maybe we don't run a lot of draws, we are often relying on the mandatory card draw at the start of every turn. Especially, I'll give you an example, such as a combo deck, where you run multiple copies of cards which allow you to filter and replace itself as everything is a one-for-one. One. You play a card to draw another card, you get what I'm saying? Something like Zornite Urchin, which enables you to discard one card to tutor another card from your deck or draw one. Cards like Deep Meditation allows you to search out two spells from your deck, meaning that the chances of you drawing to Karma or Ezreal increases in the in a scenario where you're playing Ezreal Karma. So when it comes to other decks which don't really run card draws, they are very reliant on the card in which they draw at the start of every turn. Sometimes in a mid-range matchup, apart from Ash Sejuani, I can't see any other mid-range deck that has an inherent ability to draw many cards. Some examples of mid-range decks that do allow you to draw is none other than the Masia, the region that's primarily known as the king of mid-range, or the deck that is known to have a very linear playstyle where it's very predictable. Every turn you're gonna do this, you're gonna do that. When the turn when the turn reaches four, five, and six, you more or less know what your opponent's gonna drop every turn. If he doesn't have it, then good for you. They potentially miss out on a power turn. And that can be factored into good RNG for your opponent's side and bad for your for your opponent who is on the receiving end of that terrible RNG. Sometimes when you think about card draw, you also can factor into Noxious. In the Noxious, Noxious is the one region where RNG doesn't really decide its outcome. It's very similar to Demacia, where Demacia is very oriented towards having a very linear plan of playing mostly mid-range minions with good stat lines. Noxious is more or less in your face, trying to end the game as soon as possible with direct Nexus damage. So when it comes to RNG, these two decks rely on having very stable builds where what you play is what you get, meaning that if you were to follow the intended play guide, because the playstyle is so linear, everything you're supposed to do, display. And if you're not able to do display, there's a chance you're going to lose. So that's a trade-off between running a very consistent deck, whereas running a combo deck, where in a combo deck, you have many chances of drawing into cards, which enable you to win the game at the later part, or maybe have the right cards at the right time to deal with your opponent's onslaught, such as mid-range decks. Because when you look at one of the most set, Popular example of a Noxious deck, which is most recently the Noxious, the Darius Harrowing deck. It doesn't run a lot of random random outcomes, meaning that every card that you draw, or your, even your opening mulligan hand is very important. And every subsequent card draw, be it from turn 4 onwards, is very pivotal. Because there are some turns in which you don't have a specific minion to drop. Maybe you'll draw a 5 cost Kato the Arm on a turn 4, and you're not able to do any single play. But sometimes, that stroke of bad luck can actually win you the game because you are able to save up spell mana for a turn and who knows, you might draw into the harrowing on a later turn. Sometimes, this is how RNG really affects the game in a sense. And then another thing about card draw is the top deck walls in mid-range decks like I, like I said earlier where you are drawing a 5 cost card on a turn 4 and maybe both of you and your opponent are playing mid-range decks and you don't really have any play to do on your respective turns. And then it's basically a passing back and forth because there's no place between you and your opponent. And so the game reaches a stalemate. And whoever draws the right card with the right amount of mana on that turn usually is the one that wins. And then when it comes to outcome randomness, let me give you an example of a lab, which was the reason why Spirit Blossom was such a success. It is none other than the Bestow Lab. 
Apart from the pistolet being incredibly fun for everyone, being an alternative to just grinding out ranked games over and over again, it also gives the normal player who didn't buy the Spirit Blossom Pass the ability to get Spirit Petals and advance through the Spirit Blossom Festival quest route or the quest road giving them access to free hats. But of course, you need to buy the entire pass to, to, to fully unlock everything else. But that said, when you look at the Bistol Lab, it is a very good example of RNG. Because when your creatures are destroyed, you can't tell which minion or champion will be buffed when your creatures are destroyed. Sometimes the deck build really helps into it. Let me explain. There are some decks which don't really benefit much from the Bistol Lab, such as the Powder Monkey, the Poro, and especially the Crimson Scar deck. When we look at these 3 decks and we compare it to the total 6 decks that exist, the ones which were ephemeral were the ones that benefited from this bestow lab. Because we all know that when ephemeral creatures are destroyed, they are always destroyed at the end of turn due to their status as ephemeral units. So it plays very well along to the bestow lab where every creature, when it's destroyed, they will pass down the stats or you'll pass up the stats to the next minion in your hand or your next card draw. So when we think about it in this way, when we look at Crimson Scars, Boros, and the Powder Monkey deck. Most of their creatures are pretty weak. Their stat lines aren't that great. But for ephemeral mid-range, or for ephemeral units, their, their stats tend to be pretty good as they are not expected to last more than a turn. So when you factor in ephemeral strength in having high stats and being able to be destroyed, regardless of training it in, or doing direct, doing direct combat damage and then it being destroyed, the stats are almost guaranteed to pass down and the stats are pretty damn good. So especially when the deck revolves around ephemeral units and a couple of strong finishers like Hecarim, Zed, which are able to be buffed from the ephemeral units being destroyed and bestowed upon them, it truly makes the other 3 or 2 decks out of the 6 in the bestow lab mode stronger than the rest of the deck. And this can be seen in outcome randomness when it comes to the bestow lab, where you can't really tell which minions or champions are going to be buffed. But from the, from the build itself, it really helps you out knowing that your deck will benefit from it. Hence the reason why we see most of the players who are playing the Bistow Lab, they'll usually run the Noble Justice one, which is the Lucian Kalista deck, which revolves around destroying your own creatures and buffing everything, and then using challenging units as charm blockers, or like charm, in, charm units to soak in the attack while you do the real damage. And then we look at the Ephemeral mid-range one, with Zed, Hecarim, Harrowing, having access to the Yenai, which means that you have a very strong mid to late game, not to mention, due to that lab, there was a new champion animation when the champions are destroyed. So that's pretty sick. Kudos to Riot for that. Another famous example when it comes to all card randomness, and I'll just quote one card, which just happens to be on everyone's mind, especially right now in the new mid-range meta, and Ezreal Twister Fate being, I would say, in a pretty strong position, as he has most, as he has very good removal at early turns, from Thermogenic Beam, which is always scaling, to Mystic Shot, to Make It Rain, being able to be buffed by your Kex. But there's one card which really makes Ezreal Twister Fate really incredibly strong. And that is none other than Red Tide Rack. No doubt the ability of being able to cast Cannon Barrage during 2 damage times 7 on your entire enemy board, even doing 1 damage to your Nexus if the unit that is targeted by Cannon Barrage is no longer there. It's an incredibly strong unit. But one of the strongest suit of it is its randomness of being the, of targeting random units. Sometimes Redirects can just destroy one unit or the or the cannon barrage just target one unit and that's easily 14 damage right there and no minion or champion can survive that not to my understanding or, or not to what the extent of the game can do unless you already use a what's that card the one is able to fully heal your minion or your champion and double the stats but highly likely no one runs that so your redirects is more or less going to destroy everything and then when you factor in the randomness, the ability to spread throughout the entire board or just target 1 million just on the randomness of the card itself and it having a very strong effect means that it's almost always guaranteed to do certain amount of impact to the board. And when we think of redirects, it's often seen as a finisher card or Bilgewater's signature late game card to close out the game. However, sometimes when you factor in bad RNG, you may target the, one, the things that you do not want to destroy and, some, and we can use Oracle's Eye to see the intended outcome. And maybe one Ranger's Resolve can sort of mitigate the effects of redirects, but sometimes the whole reason why we run redirects isn't because we want to get lucky all the time. It's due to how redirects nature. You are more or less going to profit from it, be it from boot or bad RNG. The outcome randomness from it is more or less going to 
put you in a very dominating lead when it comes to playing Azure Twister Fate in the later stages of the game. Because you might not necessarily rely on just redirects. It's more or less a card which helps you to level up Ezreal as soon as possible. And then you follow it up by dropping Ezreal or Twister Fate after redirects when your opponent wants to deal with it. Because there's no benefit from dealing with redirects. Its effect's already been done. And when you remove it, it only has 4 life. And most of the cards or also removals don't really do 4 damage. Like I mentioned in my previous episode. Redirects is a card which is very tricky to deal with because it, it really... It's really done its effect. If you want to clear it, it's sort of a waste of removal unless you have something that has 4 attack which is able to survive or destroy redirects in exchange. But highly likely when redirects resolves its effect, everything is really destroyed. So there's something to think about it. And the most famous example when it comes to Alcaradiness is not other than York Saron. If you guys play Herbstone, you probably remember this card. It's not other than the Herbstone card, one of the old gods expansion. I think it was at least 5 or 6 years ago. Its effect is cast a random spell for each spell that you cast this game, and the targets are chosen randomly. So when we think of Yoxeron, it is the ultimate RNG card in recent memory when it comes to digital card games. Because in physical card games, there wasn't such a card known as Yoxeron. Sometimes the incremental RNG for every every card they play really detects or decides the outcome of the game. But Yoxeron on its own, you can play an incredibly good game. You can be an incredibly skilled Hearthstone player. Your opponent might not necessarily be a very good player, but all you got to do is just cast Yoxeron in the deck which focuses on a lot of spells. And he's more or less going to win the game because Yoxeron has either four has four outcomes. The first one is he wins you the game by doing a lot of random spells to deal direct nexus damage to you. The second outcome is he casts a lot of spells which puts your opponent or you at a disadvantage, which gives him a lead. Because we all know that casting random spells and you wouldn't know that the targets are also chosen randomly means that there's a lot of different outcomes. But the second one which I mentioned is he will put you in a lead. Let's say some spells are able to generate your minions, some spells which maybe put you back to full life, and some spells will destroy everything on your opponent's side. So that's something that you do have to take note. And the third, the third outcome is you have a bad outcome, you're already losing and you draw Yoxeron thinking that you turn around the game. But then Yoxeron does what Yoxeron does and instead puts you at a more disadvantaged position and enables your opponent to have more creatures on the board. Because we all know about the, the RNG in Hearthstone, about things that you cannot control. And so, you're either going to lose from it, or you put your opponent in such an incredibly strong lead that there's no way you can come back from it. And the final outcome, which is the outcome which is most likely going to happen when you drop Yoxeron, is that nothing happens, the board remains the same. And lastly, it's not other than deck builds, which is something that not a lot of people think of when it comes to RNG. But a strong deck build, or a choice of strategy between the decks that you want to run in a tournament or on the ladder really makes or breaks you when it comes to relying on luck or trying to avoid bad luck when it comes to playing card games. Sometimes the deck that we play, be it playing a mid-range deck, meaning that we're going to sacrifice the ability to have luck decide our outcome of the game, or we run a mid-range deck, which we minimize the amount of luck, but we make it more stable, meaning that if everything goes according to plan, you're going to win the game. And now that I mentioned everything goes along to plan, that's more or less the strategy that mid-range decks run, right? They don't really run any cards that rely on summoning random creatures other than Bridgewater. Bridgewater is the main region when it comes to RNG. And I would say that Riot has done a good job not making RNG a factor in every region, primarily making it a more piratey region, a piratey variant when it comes to Bridgewater. So when we look at S. Sojourney, the Marcia Harrowing, even Darius Harrowing, the decks itself, they don't really run any random cards. It means that what they play is what they get. And so they sacrifice randomness for consistency. And so deck builds are very important when it comes to thinking about RNG and how whether you want to let it affect you or not. And then also when it comes to combo decks, you're running a lot of random cards. Can be Karma? Karma can be Karma as as your Karma heavily relies on Karma's ability to double every spell. But some things that people don't actually factor in is Karma's ability to generate random spells, along with inside ages with Karma on board in the late game enables you to generate 4 random spells. I cover this during my second episode where I go into detail why Karma is so strong along with Inside Ages and Deep Meditation. And also in combo decks, you're running a lot of draw spells, meaning that you're relying on luck to get the cards or maybe the spells that you need so that when you draw the spells, you're mitigating the chance of it being drawn and then you try to draw into more of important combo pieces like Ezreal and Karma, which I said just now. And so another point about deck builds is the tech choices that we make in the in building our decks. Let's say you are both you and your opponent are running the same deck. What makes it different between you and your opponent is that maybe you guys run three different or six different cards. 
A very good example is Esojani, where your opponent might run the Kato the Arm and Trifarian. Is it Trifarian? There's a Trifarian something. The 3 mana 5 4. And then you might run the Everosan Hervgard and Babbling Bird version, which makes it a very huge 6 card difference. Another example is in Demacia. Your opponent might run Triple Duel and 2 Rangers Resolve. As for yourself, you only run 3 duels and you run 2 Purified instead of running Rangers Resolve. And so the deck choices really do make a difference between the deck. But the biggest issue is that adding 3 copies or 2 copies sometimes changes the outcome of the game. Meaning that if you run 3 copies of it, you're more or less going to draw it. And if you run 2 copies, there's a chance of you not being able to draw it. But what happens if you play 3 copies or you play 2 copies and you're not able to draw a single copy of your deck choice? Or your deck is so optimized that you run 3 copies of it and somehow, someway, you run 3 copies of the Harrowing and you don't even draw a single one in the first place. You already optimize your deck build, you already make it as standard, as consistent, and very having a very linear plan, linear, linear plan sorry, that you want the game to turn out, but you just don't draw the card. And then maybe you just run one copy of the Harrowing and you're able to draw it every single game. And you think that, oh my gosh, I'm such a talented player. So when it comes to deck builds, you can try to minimize the chance that RNG can screw you over. But if you maximize everything in 3 and you don't draw it, it comes down to a case of bad luck. However, the main point is that when it comes to deck builds, running 3 copies of everything really increases your chance of being screwed over by bad RNG. Whereas running 1 copy means that you're hopefully want to draw it in a position where you are more or less leading the game, or you're relying on luck to, to make sure that, let's say I run 1 copy, I'm in a very bad situation, I run everything else 3 copies, there's a very hard chance that I might be able to draw that 1 copy of, a, of an out to my opponent. So now that we have discussed all three parts of RNG when it comes to Legends of Runeterra or card games today, let's move on to Legends of Runeterra, the game as a whole, and we take a look at the various regions and how RNG is maybe a factor or not a factor at all, and how Riot Games have really balanced everything out, making it one of the best card games that I've ever played to date. Right now, let's take a look at Bilgewater. I'm sure you guys remember the days of it primarily known as the deck which steals cards from you, the steal of Wheel of Ionia, the steal of Deep Meditation, everything they can think of, it is a nasty, nasty mechanic known as Nap. But right now, where we see it being a mid-range meta, Bushwater has defaulted into its original strength, which is Twisted Fate and Riptide Rex. Such a shame that Gangplank used to be pretty good, but now people have found a way to optimize Bushwater by putting Ezreal and Twisted Fate together. It was one of the ideas that came up, but it was often overshadowed by the strength of Heimervai and Ezreal Karma. Not to mention that Ezreal Twister Fate had an abysmal matchup against Heimervai in the past. With Heimervai out of the picture and every mid-range deck relying on a very linear playstyle, Ezreal Karma, or let me correct myself, Ezreal Twister Fate has risen up as the deck of choice against all the mid-range decks, as they possess the ability of early game minion destruction through their cheap cost removal along with a pretty decent amount of creatures to summon every turn and not to mention they have Riptide Rex which, on the late, which in the late game towards turn 8 where most rage decks have really lost their steam Ezreal Twister Fate is able to capitalize on it through warning shot and then dropping one Riptide Rex to destroy everything or all, all your opponent's hope and dreams with just one card. So when we look at Bilgewater especially when it comes to the net mechanic in Azure Twister Fate, there, exists, there still exists a certain degree of nap, which is in Yordle Grifter and Black Market Merchant. These two, get, these two cards alone might not seem very powerful, especially that we know that nap has been nerfed pretty hard. But then these creatures that enable nap are now in the form of minions, meaning that they can put up pressure and deal direct nexus damage or even threaten chip damage every single turn. And with the nerf mechanic, it means that there's still a certain degree of RNG. But no doubt Naps steals from the bottom of the deck. The other Grifter is no small chump. It's the ability to generate warning shot and then steal one card from your opponent's deck. In the event that you also have Black Market Merchant on the, on the field, it reduces the cost of the card stolen by one. Can you imagine in a mirror match where you have access to Rip Directs earlier, becoming 7 mana along with warning shot? It helps you achieve the level up condition of Azure even earlier. And we all know about how Nap is against mirror against mid-range decks, which I already said briefly in the last episode, where stealing a key card from your opponent's side is more or less able to win you the game. Because in a mid-range deck, they rely on every single card, at least one copy of each card to be drawn every turn in order to win the game. Let's say you have to steal that one copy of the heroine that they play. They will easily put a hole into their strategy 
Or maybe they might rely just on that one copy to surprise you, but instead you have it. So there's something to think about when it comes to NAP right now in the meta of mid-range decks, where Azure Twister Faith has access to NAP through Yordle Grifter and Black Market Merchant. They no longer run Pilford Goods, meaning that they're getting a plus one or even a plus two whenever they drop Yordle Grifter or Black Market Merchant onto the board. And another card has tons of RNG in Bridgewater. It's not that Red Tyrex, which I mentioned, where the outcome randomness, sometimes you can't decide. But more or less, it's going to destroy one. And in certain scenarios, destroy everything the opponent has. So it comes to Bridgewater. These are the two things that really ties down to making it a very RNG. Or a region that relies on some degree of RNG to win the game, which is in Nap and Red Tyrex. And not to mention, they also have certain summoning of random minions through Island Navigator, giving the one cost minion that is summoned, the ability to have Scout, and also Double Trouble, a 3 mana slow spell which summons two one cost minions. And we all know the strength of one cost minions in the game. And sometimes Double Trouble also works really well with, I think some Professor Von Yip. Now that's a very off meta deck, which you briefly saw in the Bistow lab. Also, the big issue when it comes to Bridgewater and RNG is not other than Sea Monsters. There are cards like Jaw Hunter, the ability to generate additional Devourer Labs and, sh- and Shipwreck Holders to win the game. Sometimes, those additional minions that were spawned by Jaw Hunters don't really make a difference, but you do have to understand the overall underlying strategy behind Sea Monsters. It is to toss Sea Monsters from the, or the toss cards from the bottom of your deck to reach deep as soon as possible. But what happens if you were to toss, you were to reach deep by tossing most of your Sea Monsters and you summon Nautilus? However, you still have certain cards that you want to play out in order to achieve Maokai's level up condition. So you'll see yourself tossing even more cards, meaning that the sea monsters that were shuffled back in are most of the time going to be tossed away again. Meaning that you, you won't often have the chance, especially in the control matchup, to have a lot of sea monsters to close out the game. Maybe two or three copies of Nautilus might be on the field, but they can easily get destroyed, knowing that it's a control matchup. Your opponent might have Vengeance or an additional copy of the Re-Nation, maybe multiple copies. And that's where Jaw Hunter comes in. I believe that Jaw Hunter, the ability to generate additional sea monsters like Devourer Adepts and Shiret Holders, Abyssal Eye, etc. Especially in a newer patch or a newer expansion where there will be more access to different sea monsters. Your natural build might be just running the standard field. 3 Abyssal Eye, 3 Devourer Depths, maybe 1, uh, one Shipwreck Hoarder, and 1 Terror of the Tides. The last slot is up to you, especially when it comes to Shipwreck Hoarder or Terror of the Tides. I can see with the future expansion where there might be new sea monsters, Jaw Hunter might become an issue with the ability to generate sea monsters that might not necessarily be in your deck. So that's one thing that you do have to take note of. And also, when it comes to sea monsters, there's also the issue of tossing. Where it's a very good scenario where you toss every single sea monster, which is a good RNG. And there's also a bad case in which RNG can happen. Where you test, where you toss out most of your key spells, like Withering Whale, Grass on Undying, Atrocity, which are cards that could become your alternate win condition or to slow down the game. So when it comes to tossing, you can't really control it because it comes from a bottom of the deck. There's still the argument that you might not have access to it regardless of whether it's tossed or not because it's at the bottom of your deck. That all comes down to RNG whether you even have it in your opening hand. The only way you can solve it somehow is through the mulligan during the start of the game. Other than that, that's about it. And also the lastly, the last point of sea monsters being quite RNG reliant is Nautilus. I've mentioned multiple times of Nautilus being at the bottom of your deck and that's something that cannot be helped which only can be solved through Mulligan, but I don't really know the degree in which Mulligan helps in, hel- in, in shuffling the entire deck overall. So that might be something that I'll look into and share with you all in a future episode. And next, we'll talk about the Masya, the most consistent region where I mentioned time and time again that what you play is what you get. The only issue with the Masya and RNG is how often it gets, screws over, it gets screwed over by the fact that maybe you're facing against a control or a combo deck and they draw every single out that they need. They draw the combo pieces early, they're able to disrupt your flow of being a mid-range deck. Your opponent just drawing the right cards at the right time. Also, you need to factor in that maybe you didn't draw the right cards that you need. You didn't have Wizard Ranger on turn 4, you didn't have Queen on turn 5. Maybe Genevieve is lying at the bottom of your deck on turn 6. Overall, you are trading away the ability to have some degree of luck to influence the game. In exchange, you are getting a more consistent and stable playstyle. And that's also one weakness of Demacia. It is how predictable it is for your opponent to play against it. It feels that sometimes, especially on a master ladder, you look at your opponent and he and you somehow you are facing against Demacia. You look at it and you know, feels like I'm playing against an AI. Turn 1, you'll probably be the tracker. Turn 2, it might be Bright Steel, Protector. 
on even War Chefs turn 3, he might even have Misfortune. And if he doesn't do anything on turn 3, there's a high chance that he might have Relentless Pursuit. Turn 4, Grizzard Rager. You get what I'm saying? It's a very predictable kind of play. The line of play isn't very exciting. Your opponent can more or less mulligan what they need, especially when the Masai becomes a threat from turn 4 onwards with Grizzard Ranger and stuff. They can easily mulligan and prepare ahead for what your opponent or what you might have as a Masai player. The only RNG in the Masai that I can think of comes down to Swiftling Lancer and Remembrance. However, when it comes to those two cards, there's a limited pool of cards that you can get from these two cards, especially when Swiftling Lancer gets destroyed. Let's just say that you're already put in a situation where it doesn't really matter because you're going to lose. Because that turn 5 with Swiftling Lancer, if it's get disrupted through Wheel of Ionia or some form of removal, going to turn 6 onwards as a Damasa player, it isn't a very good situation, meaning that you've already lost control over the board and you're probably going to lose. Same things as for the Remembrance. You're either going to play it on turn 3 with 6 mana, with the spell mana included, or you're going to drop it when most of your creatures get destroyed, hoping that you summon Radiant Guardian. These two cards are exceptionally strong in the mid-range battle. But now I'm talking about it facing against control or combo. It might have the strength of being a mid-range deck, being able to drop creatures and champions consistently. But then when we think about decks like Ezreal Twister Fit, being the ability to have access to early removal, Riptide Rex which can wreck all mid-range decks, and also another variant which is Ezreal Karma, which now they run multiple concussive palms, and they still run Wheel of Ionia. And hence, I don't think that the Masia can deviate from much of his playstyle. It relies on the fact of being Demacia, which is being consistent, to win the game. It is very card draw reliant, meaning that you are really hoping to have good RNG to draw out, or good luck, to draw out the right cards at every turn, hoping that turn 1 you have the right play, turn 2 right play, turn 3, turn 4, 5, you get what I mean. So right now, let's look at Piltover and Zon and Ionia, namely Ezreal Kama. The strength as a combo deck, as well as his ability to be jet, the ability of his randomness, being super random, and being able to generate win conditions out of nowhere. The first thing when it comes to Karma in the Astro Karma deck is his ability to generate random spells, and his champion spell, which is Inside of Ages, allows it to generate even more random spells, especially with Karma on board. That's four spells. And most of the time, with Karma on board, you are more or less going to generate at least one spell, because you're going to drop it on turn 9, hoping that goes in turn 10, you have. Karma on board undisrupted with Inside of Ages. And now when you look at Ezreal Karma's overall playstyle, it is to level up Ezreal and Karma at the same time. However, Karma's priority is more important. Because Karma alone, when we look at Spooky Karma, it's just one Karma alone can take over the game. Now we place it with just Karma and Ezreal Karma. Every spell that it casts is doubled, meaning that my, the famous combo that I always speak of, double get excited, double mystic shot, is 20 damage. Meaning that you just need to store out the game to that, to that state, have those 4 cards along with Karma, and you're gonna win sufficient mana as well. Health Potion can't, health potion can't negate much of the thing. And maybe if you want to drop in another spell to it to make it, to make sure that the spell chain cannot be broke, because we all know that the max spell is 10. And if you're able to cast 10 spells together with the 4 spells I mentioned, meaning 4 times 2 is 8, and you just need one more slow spell, no, not slow spell, one more fast spell. And then misses the spell chain at 10, meaning that your opponent can't deny any of the spells in the spell chain. It's guaranteed 20 damage OTK as a Astral Karma player. And now that we know that there's an almost guaranteed way of killing your opponent with the cards that's already in your deck, we have to factor in that Karma can generate random spells along with Inside Ages. Those random spells can go from the degree of healing your Nexus, especially with Ritual of Renewal, with it being double, double healing, 14 life, Health Potion, 1 Mana Burst, 6 Life remo- six life Heal Back. And then also with Deep Meditation, meaning that you can double everything that you take from your deck, and you're essentially thinning out everything to draw into Ezreal even faster, or maybe Yon. Is it Yone or Yon? I think it's Yone. And now when you think about the ability to generate random spells or slow down the game to draw in the right cards, you don't necessarily need Ezreal all the time, because one Karma on board is able to win you the game through all the doubling of spells, double the value. And then we also have to factor in that when Karma is leveled up, it, it has the ability to double proc all your targeting spell with cards like Static Shift. Static Shift by its own already does 1 damage to 2 units, either the Nexus, Minion or Double Minion. Can you imagine if you were to double it up with Karma on board, meaning that its target twice, time 2, is 4 times. 
and most of the time during the early stages of the game, you already have 4 charges on Ezreal, and 1 cast of Static Shift might net you the ability to reach Ezreal's level up condition. As you can look at it, Ezreal Karma is a combo deck, but it has many tricks up its sleeves. Thankfully, not a lot of people play Ezreal Karma nowadays. It might be, it's still good in a mid-range meta. It's very hit or miss. You're very reliant on the mid-range decks not being able to draw the right cards at every turn. Because like I mentioned earlier, where mid-range decks are very card draw reliant, they need to top deck the right thing at every turn. You know, in Because if they miss out one turn, that's giving the combo player spell mana to replenish. Because sometimes they might get into a pinch and overuse their mana for one turn. Spell mana is very key against combo decks. And mid-range decks, if they play well, the right build, draw the right cards, mulligan well, something to your luck involved in that, the combo decks might not be able to play out most of their strategy because the mid-range minions have pretty good stat line. And Ezreal Karma heavily relies on their removal getting rid of. Let's just say it's a 1 for 1 exchange, they can't take any additional damage to their nexus because life total is very important. Especially when you look at Eye of the Dragon. Being able, being right now very easily getting destroyed by vulnerable and challenger unit. And also when it comes to PNZ and Irene, we also have to talk about Progress Day. It's easily generated through Flash of Brilliance. I don't know some people don't play at all. There's an off chance that you might be running the Teemo's Juani deck, meaning that you have access to PNZ cards. Why is that Progress Day is enable to enable you to draw 3 cards and reduce your 1 mana spell to 0 cost. Even some of your champions are at reduced cost, as you to 2, which will open up a lot of plays. And when progress day RNG, we also need to factor in that about card draw, drawing the right cards as it's discounted. So when it comes to this style of thing, it's something you cannot control, but you do have to take on off. Because good RNG in progress day can really make a big deal. Especially when I talk about progress day as well. Some things come to your mind, especially in Heimervi era. Where a good progress day with a Heimer lot, and let's say, <coughs> sorry, let's say you have 10 mana. You cast progress day, you can generate one T-Hex. And who knows, you might draw into 3 cards. One of it can be the pre-nerf Flash of Brilliance. From 3 becomes 2. And here's the thing where Heimervi gets incredibly strong when you're leading and you have this style lead. You can cast 2 mana Flash of Brilliance to generate 3 mana back. And those 3 mana back, let's say you draw into a Tomogenic Beam, maybe a Twin Disciples, you're able to generate additional outs to protect your Heimer, and also generate 3 minions. The 3 additional mana given by Flash of Brilliance when it's cost 2, Open up, opens up a lot of play. So when we see when Heimervi gets got hit incredibly hard in patch 1.6, it's quite justified because progress day, if left unchecked, can really turn the meta upside down. But it's usually cast when you're really winning. And then and the last example for PNZ, it's not other than Corina Control, the deck where we saw Heimer. They call it Corvina. Heimer. No, not Heimer, sorry. They runs Vi, Elise. It's more like a deck which is able to slow down the game. Actually, the whole concept of Corina control is you either win by spiders or you wait to the late game where you drop Corina. No, you drop Ledros to half your opponent's life and then you drop Corina. But to run Corina, you need to make sure that your deck consists tons of spells. That's why when we see Corina control, they usually run just 3 Vi, 3 Elise, 3 Frenzied Skitterer, 3 Ledros and 2 Corina meaning that their creature count is incredibly low, and everything else is spells. However, we have seen the good and bad side when it comes to Corina. Most of the time, you're not being able to toss 5 spells. You toss out all your Ledros, and that's a very bad form of terrible RNG. But that's the thing about Corina decks. You are running very little creatures, tons of removal. And to store out to the late game, where Corina really shines along with Ledros to deal burn damage. So that's one thing when it comes to Corina. Is it a very RNG reliant deck? I must say so. Because you're banking on the fact that you're, you're trying to stall, you're trying to ensure that you draw early removal during the early part of the game. And then during the mid part of the game, you hopefully or some way you have Vi in your hand to stall out or to mitigate the amount of damage as possible. And then in the late game, you must have Ledros or Corina in your hand. So you see, when it comes to Corina control versus Ezreal Karma, there's a very stark difference. Ezreal Karma can be incredibly flexible to play. Whereas Corina Control, you have a set game plan every single stages of the, every, every stage of the game. And if you were to miss out on one stage of the game, you're probably going to lose. 
So that's the reason why I don't see coronal control being very popular. Even back in the day when coronal control was popular, it was only seen as a counter to elusive burn. But other than that, it was terrible against every other meta deck. Some might argue with me saying that coronal control is incredibly good and consistent. Like I do see some players that could reach rank 1 master back in the day with just coronal control. Because they made a very good meta call knowing that they'll be facing aggro most of the time. However, when they were to face control or combo decks, the deck might fall flat. Because nothing makes a combo player happier than a coronal control not having the optimal early, mid and late game. And the late game from coronal control compared to Ezreal Kama is pretty insignificant because it's very it's very predictable you're going to drop Ledros. That's 9 mana already. And let's say you drop Ledros and if you don't expel mana, the Ezreal Kama player is being able to develop his Kama and maybe his Ezreal on the same turn together. And we're talking about pre-nerf Ezreal and Kama. Meaning that they'll be going to into the next turn with 13 mana, a Kama leveled up, even an Ezreal is leveled or almost leveled up. Meaning that they really have maybe two forms of way to destroy you. Is either through Ezreal, Ezreal with Kama's doubling of everything, or they can just use random spells to win the game. So right now let's talk about the best mid-range deck in the meta. Or I'm just gonna talk about Freelord being represented by Esadrani, which is the Frostbite mid-range. When we look at the deck as a whole, the reason why it succeeds compared to the rest of the other mid-range decks in the meta is that it has an inherent card draw and the ability to buff up every other minion in their deck, especially if they are running the Avrosen Hearthguard version, not the Kapol the Arm. The Kato the Arm version is incredibly good against other mid-range decks who don't have life healing back, especially Kato and that Trifarian card with 3 mana 5-4, you're able to do overwhelm damage consistently, whereas the Avrosen Hearthguard also is equally good in the mirror in the matchup against other mid-range decks, being having the ability to buffer everything by one, which is a luxury that a lot of mid-range decks don't have. They also have access to frostbite, being able to have very efficient combat combat phase kind of interactions. So when we see Astro Johnny, they are quite immune to RNG due to the nature of the deck, able to have a strong board, able to freeze their opponent minions to maybe stop lethal for a turn, buy themselves one more turn, and also through card draw with Trifarian Assessor. So we look at it and how Esodrani is dominating the meta is because they possess the power of a mid-range deck with the card draw of a combo deck with Trifarian Assessor. And Frozen Hearthguard really plays into it, meaning that they are able to buff everything. And let's say if you were to drop Trifarian Assessor without any other 5 attack minion on board, you are able to draw 1. There is a very high chance that when you drop Trifarian Assessor, you're able to draw into maybe draw 3 or draw 4. And you're able to replenish your hand with even more Ash or so much Drani. And no other mid-range deck has the ability to do that. The ability to draw into more cards. And when you have the ability to draw into more cards, it means that you are you have more you have earlier access and a much easier way to draw into your champions. Because of course we know that Freylord runs or Freylord has entreat, but no one runs that in the mid-range deck, right? And we all know that in mid-range decks, most of the minion can represent itself, meaning that they're very good stat line, especially with Avrosa Hearthguard in the deck, able to buff everything. Sometimes you don't have to draw your champions, you can draw any other card, which can be 4 attack or 5 attack. And even drawing the Babbling Bird will enable you to draw into your Ash or Sejuani by summoning it and drawing it. However, there's only a small degree of bad RNG when it comes to Babbling Bird. It is that if it doesn't net you Ash or Zidrani, there's a very high chance that you might draw into Trifarian Glory Seeker, which is the challenger unit. Sai so must say that can't be that bad because the theme of it is Frostbite, meaning that you're a Trifarian Glory Seeker. If you were to challenge something, you are able to drop a Frostbite, and then your Trifarian Glory Seeker will have a very good trade. Like most mid-range decks, there's still the overall elephant in the room, which is that mid-range decks really are reliant on the opponent not drawing their key cards when it comes to the mid-range versus mid-range kind of matchup. And in the mirror match, whoever has more access to Ephrosa Hearthguard, Ash, or even Sejuani will put them in a more dominating position in the game. Also another form of Freelord decks where we see quite often is when it's paired with Shadow Owls, which is the Anivia Revive, or even the War Mother Control, which also see Anivia being played. The main card of the War Mother deck, or the Anivia decks in general, is that we have to understand that War Mother sometimes doesn't win the game. And it's one of those cards that, if you resolve it, you are going to win, but it comes to a later part of the game. 
meaning that you're very susceptible to the onslaught of mid-range decks, and also against control decks, where they're hoping that you don't put any amount of pressure early, and then they're able to reach the later part of the game, have more access to mana, and can do more things. And let's say if you were to resolve War Mother, you have the very bad chance of having terrible RNG of summoning Whirling Stones from the top of your deck, cards that you wish that you had in your opening hand to expedite the rate of dropping War Mother earlier. And also the last part when it comes to Frey Lord, it is Omen Hawk. A lot of people are complaining, saying that that card is incredibly overpowered. In my opinion, I think the card is overpowered. Because it's a one drop, and then it's able to buff up plus one plus one to the next two minions of your deck, next two cards at the top of your deck. So when we think about it in this perspective, if you are running a deck which is mid range, it means that your turn two and turn three, let's just say that you are by some luck good RNG, the next two cards in your that you're going to draw because it's going to be a turn four or turn five or even a turn two or turn three minion. It having additional plus one plus one means that your early game is going to be more dominating than your opponent. If they don't run Omen Hawk, it means that their minions that they drop are going to be at their default stats. And let's say you are running Frey Lord, a Frey Lord Vision. It can be either Misfortune Sejuani or even Ash Sejuani. You are able to buff up a turn 4 or turn 5. Maybe you are able to buff up Babbling Bird to a 4-4. And then your Avrosal Health Guard is a 6-6. And in this scenario, when we compare it, or when we were to see it in the, in the perspective of a Misfortune Sejuani deck, there are cards which benefit heavily from the 1-1 increase. And those cards are none other than Ruthless Raider. That card is a 3-1 with armor, meaning that it survives against most minions with 1 attack. And let's say you have to buff it to an additional 1-1 it can trade efficiently into 2 attack minions and survive with 1 life. Any other form of removal which does 1 damage is makes it immune to it. And that puts Ruthless Raider at a very strong position during the early game to essentially win for you the game. And let's not forget that there's a high chance that it might buff up your Jagged Butcher, meaning that you're able to have access to a 1 mana 4-4 if you're able to trigger the Plunder card. And that only happens when not only the first thing, you open your Omen Hawk, and the second thing, which is those two cards being at the top of your deck, and those things seldom happen, and if it does, it means that you're very lucky, and there's a high chance that you're going to win the game either way. Other forms of RNG that I can think of is not other than decks that you face on a ladder, be it good or bad matchups. There's a high chance that you play in a tournament, and let's say every single round you were to face a lineup that your opponent has that highly favours you. Is it because you're lucky? That's hard to say. But sometimes I believe that in a competitive setting, the player, the better player always wins. And definitely, if you were to face everything that is something that you prepare for in the lineup that you have, kudos on you. There's a high chance you deserve the good luck because you're well prepared. Another way to I can think of curbing RNG is play more mid-range decks, like I mentioned, stable playstyle, consistent. You are trading you're essentially trading away the chance to win the game through randomness in order to have a more stable and linear kind of play. And last but not least, there's only a, another way that I can think of of curbing RNG that is to play the game more, understand your role in the game, and predicting your opponent's play when they have certain amount of mana, or when you see them suddenly pausing and thinking about it. So those are the few ways that I can think of improving or reducing the, um, the way RNG can affect your game. But so far in Legends of Runeterra, they have done an amazing job when it comes to RNG. In all the regions, it seems well balanced. The only one that is not really balanced is Bridgewater. Well, of course, we got to take it. Imagine all seven regions, or potentially eight with Targo in the future, are incredibly RNG-reliant. The game will be just another form of Hearthstone. Legends of Runeterra only having Bridgewater as the RNG-related or RNG-esque deck. I would say that the position of, R- the position of Legends of Runeterra right now, as we know that Targon will be the final region of the year until next year, puts Legends of Runeterra in a very good place as not one of the only card games which is not, re- which is not very reliant on RNG. And so I come to the end of today's episode. Thank you for listening, and let me just do a rough recap before I close it out. So when it comes to RNG in Legends of Runeterra, there are only a couple of ways in which it really affects you. And this is no choice, as it happens in every other card game as well. The first thing is none other than the card drawing. You either have the chance of drawing one card every turn, or you try to elevate 
bad RNG by having multiple draws in your deck. Essentially switching out the consistency of a mid-range deck and becoming more of a combo-oriented kind of playstyle. The second one is another than deck build. When it also comes to deck build, you need to identify the kind of game that you want to play. Maybe you have a set of cards that you want to play with more mana to form like a combo. Or maybe you try to build your deck to be more of an aggro or mid-range kind of style to close out the game as soon as possible to play into your opponent's ego of them running a control or combo deck. And also when it comes to deck building, you also run tech choices. Most people choose run, choose to run 3 copies of every card. Some might just run 1 copy, hoping that, that they're able to join that 1 card every single game. By running 3 copies of everything at 1 copy, it still adds up to a 40 card deck, meaning that you have 3 copies of every single stable card that you need, and 1 secret card that you use to close out the game. And lastly, it's not other than outcome randomness, which is something that you totally cannot control. But the fact that you're running cards that have an outcome that you can't decide shows that Sometimes you just want Lady Luck to bless you and win you the game from there. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends and, if, and on your social media pages if you enjoyed it. Do follow me on Spotify, subscribe to me on Apple Podcasts if you're an Apple or iOS user, and don't forget to leave me a 5-star review as well. You can contact me via Twitter, Discord, and email. All the links of it are in the description box below. Thank you once again, and I'll see you next week. And hold on, hold on, let me, before I say that thing, yeah, next week episode is going to be amazing. I'm going to be covering in there all the cards in the Call of the Mountains expansion. Targon, the new cards, the new meta, which might potentially come out after Call of the Mountains officially launches. We, know, we all know it's going to be a ladder reset, meaning that we're going to see a lot of people testing out different concepts, different decks. And that will be a very exciting week. And I'm looking forward to that. So thank you once again. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. And that's game.